listening to Two Sons of Tatooine. If there's a bright center to the universe, you're listening to the podcast that it's farthest from. And here are your hosts, Jonathan and Nathan. Hello, everyone out there. I've got a real good show lined up for you today. Let's get right into it. I'm Nathan, one of your hosts. Joining me, as always, is Jonathan Cohn here on Two Sons of Tatooine. Subscribe to his YouTube channel of the same name for all things book-related and plenty of Star Wars. I'd also like to welcome back friend of the show and our special guest today, Trent, the everyman Star Wars enjoyer, man of most distinguished taste. <clears throat> so, with that, we're going to dive right into talking about Mandalorian Season 2, Episode... Season 3, Episode 2, entitled The Minds of Mandalore, directed by... Rachel Morrison, I believe it's her first time, and uh, written by John Favreau with a total runtime of 44 minutes, so uh, added a runtime of nearly eight minutes from last week's episode. Very, very good episode. Jonathan, let me turn it over to you and then Trent to give us some opening thoughts on Chapter 18 of The Mandalorian. It's mid. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. No, I, I, really, I, I really enjoyed this one. Um, uh, I'll, I, I told, I told Nathan already about this off camera, but I have a 4D experience, um, uh, regarding this episode, uh, or at least I think, I think I, I think I told you. So we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to that moment. Okay. But one, one less than Yu-Gi-Oh, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> but I, yeah, it was, it was a great episode. Uh, it is interesting how a lot of people online were saying there's no big, oh my goodness moments. And I'm like, in, in either episode. Yeah, there was. <laughs> and I said, yeah, there was. In the first episode, it was the, the, the Purgle. And oh, then yeah. the Purgle. And then mm-hmm. in this episode, it was the ending of the episode. And I was, I really nearly jumped out of my seat in excitement because I was like, that is exactly how you end the episode. Like, they, yeah. they, they stuck the landing on it perfectly. Mm. It was wonderful. Trent? Uh, you know, I would say that the beginning was, um, I watched it with my wife, and the beginning felt a little boring, um, despite the fact that I think it's our first time seeing Mandalorian live action. Like, we're going on surface, Mandalore live action, that's cool. Uh, mm. And the end was so great that I think, yeah, I think Jonathan said it best when he said, Men. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you said like the beginning, I thought you were talking about uh, Pelimoto. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We yeah. we both uh, reacted like, you know, okay. At least it was quick. You know, yeah. a quick scene, and then we get roll credits into the episode. You know, ex- episode here. Pelimoto is to me. She's still like the human version of a Jawa, which right. is fine, but but I can only take for so much. Without some kind of development for this it. was this Just was the perfect amount more nurturing than a Jawa. You know? It was the perfect <laughs> amount of Pelimoto in this episode. Mm-hmm. Had we gotten another full, like we've gotten full episodes with her before. This mm-hmm. amount, it was a little bit of oh yeah, remember her? All right, we're going, and it's like. <laughs> it's, for me, it's the it's the maybe it's a contractual obligation to have Tatooine. And so <laughs> things. it's like oh no, Tatooine again. No, because it's a chance. I think for it's because they've. I think it's because they've already made the design and they have the equipment to have her space yard and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, mm-hmm. even though they're using the volume, that quote-unquote set is much easier and cheaper to make. So they're like, if we're going to have him go searching for a part, may as well do it there where we can make it cheaper to make. So it makes sense to me. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Definitely she talked about um, Boba Fett. Like, are you here to overthrow Boba Fett? Boba Fett? I was like, what? You know, <laughs> are the huts back? No, what? But then we get the Boon to Eve reference, which everybody, like, throws back to, you know, Anakin talking about Boon to Eve. Um, I played the Podracer game where you had the classic, the Boon to Eve classic. It was always the biggest race. A little fun stuff like that. Um, you know, so the one-off and references were all fun and good. But it's still a little weird for me when I think, and I watch episode four, and I'm like, R5 is going to end up being the droid of Din Charin. <laughs> yeah. You're going to watch. You're going to go, well. Uh, the other thing was the one-off line, Jonathan, <laughs> Uncle Owen, this thing's got a bad motivator. <laughs> and this whole episode is, it's a cowardly droid. It's unmotivated. You know? <laughs> 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 so they the really, family guy really, joke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was it? Wait, you're right. Yes, was that was guy. a family guy joke. Jeez. It's got a bad oh motivator. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. It, they made the joke that it was like, like not, not motivated. motivated. Like, yeah. Yeah, I got you. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. I, I need to watch that. We need probably need to watch that again. And do a, uh, I thought we'll, you were going to. filler filler sometime, we'll do like a review of those. I thought the, that you were going to mention about our, our five is that there is a, a offhanded reference to um, uh, R5 helping the Rebellion and the Jedi uh, in, uh, that Pelly says when she's trying yeah. to hype up the, the droid. And the funny thing is, and John Favreau actually referenced this in the roundtable, the discussion that they had, and Dave Filoni kind of like was trying to get away from that conversation because John Favreau was like, yeah, well, in, in, in Legends, wasn't he a, a Jedi or helped out the Jedi or something? And Dave was like, no, 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 we, we, we don't talk about that. We don't talk about that. And so <laughs> it's funny that they included it here because she's basically making up a legend about him doing all this stuff. So it's like the perfect way to handle that situation. And I was like, that is that is clever writing. I appreciated that. I wasn't aware of that story until reading about it after this episode. With, right. Like, R5 was apparently, like, a Force-sensitive droid and <laughs> was trying to help R2 to become, like, the droid of Luke and stuff. And I prefer the, the canon version. I prefer, I mean, not the canon, but the uh, from a certain point of view version where R5 uh, actually uh, is just recognizes that R2 has a mission and decides to purposefully sabotage himself in order to help uh, make sure that it's R2 that they take. Hmm. Oh, that sounds like sacrificial of a robot. I know. That's, that's deep from yeah. a robot. It is. Mm-hmm. And it's, the thing is, it's not told in... Their, their communication isn't told in beeps. It's actually told in words. So you're reading like them talking back and forth to each other, and they're the only two characters that you're reading about. It's really interesting. <clears throat> Curious. That Rodian we see at the beginning... I, 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 we feel bad for this character, or we're just like, he's another <clears throat> schmuck. Like, every Rodian we see just about is just, they just treat him terribly. <laughs> I know? can't, uh, it's, if there's a Rodian on Tatooine, and I'm just like, I just keep hearing, uh, oh, his name is McClunky. McClunky. Yeah, Rito. McClunky. And it's like, are we going to do this again? Are we going to say McClunky again? <laughs> <laughs> they, they didn't. They could have. Yeah, uh, they could have. Yeah, <laughs> that was in one, all of our lists for the changes. Um. <laughs> Classic. The, I it, did you any of you guys remember the Kenobi, um, where Obi Wan is talking to the Jawas? He's like, if you're going to like steal my own parts and sell them back to me, at least like 
paint them or clean paint them or something. Or something. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and I they're wonder doing the exact if that's thing. Oh, I wonder if that's yes. the, the 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 tail wagging the dog on this one, where they had it for Kenobi, and they had this basic plot line, and they're like, "Hey, let's include this line." I wouldn't be surprised, because that's the type oh. of thing that Favreau might not do, but they would probably like the story editor, the person that's you know in there and is really looking line by line on the specifics. That mm-hmm. type of person might go in and tweak it slightly to make it fit with the other stuff. So that's that's good serendipity. What do so, you think about, like, Pelimoto being so pushy with, like, selling him destroyed? Like, it basically has to work out because she's sticking her neck out saying, right. like, you got to buy this droid. Just buy the droid. It'll work out. Promise, you know? Yeah. How does she know? That's so uh, this this whole droid purchasing <laughs> thing, it just – so I know that, you know, Din Djarin has the whole robot, I got a problem with robots thing, right? Right. Um and maybe that's why he was more comfortable with like a broken droid or like a older droid. But he was he was uh, what's it called Navarro? What's it called the uh, mm-hmm. yeah Navarro? So he, he was there like last episode, and Carl Weathers was like, "Hey, we you know we have the greatest droid makers here. We can get any right. droid you want." And I'm like, "Yeah, okay, cool. I guess he's gonna get a top notch droid and maybe get over that stigma." And then nope. he turns it down. But then he for some reason doesn't go back there. He goes to Tatooine and gets R two or not R two. Uh, R five, R five, and it's well. Like, he wasn't. She forces him to buy it. So yeah, it's just. I was just like, man, go back to Carl Weathers and get a better robot. So right. <laughs> How different would the episode have played out if you know they had IGE? You know, so instead of R five, you, you know, he gets confronted and he just like takes out all these dudes. Just blasting. <laughs> yeah. That would be really sick. Actually. That would have been a, that would have been a cool, cool thing. We could have gotten that nurse and protect soundtrack again, which is just fantastic. But I will say that, you know, Pelimoto really mm. feels like that skeevy um, uh, used car salesman trope. Uh, I like her better than um, uh, Bad Batch lady, uh, Sid. Sid? Like oh, yeah. Sid. Yeah. I wonder if this is insight into Din Djarin's, like, for certain people, they can, like, manipulate him in a certain way. Maybe, like, yeah. I don't know if anybody here has been, like, kind of schmoozed by a salesperson but they just so they're so pressured you're just like i'm just gonna buy this just so you'll shut up and i wonder if that's kind of din jarn's like you know what let's do it just because i'm tired of listening to you (laughs) but my my question is during the episode r5 goes out and disappears so din has uh grogu go inside the the pod and like get sealed in and then he goes out and uh, and goes after and rescues him and, and uses this mask to, like, cut off the air so that he can, you know, breathe uh, not the atmosphere but his oxygen. My question is, why need the droid in the first place? Why not buy some little device that can check uh, the, the, the atmosphere and just do it yourself? We only need a whole droid for that. That's like yeah. buying a whole computer when all you need is just a little chip. Okay. This, you're bringing up good points here because, like, this is my problem with the first half of the episode. The rest of the episode, after, after there's a certain point where things get good or obviously go well, um, but the, there's like these weird logic jumps that people are making. Like, Dan, getting that's a great point. I didn't think of getting a robot instead of just a reader or something. Um, and I don't fully understand how this works, but he gets out of the uh, Naboo fighter and. Baby, our Grogu is in the little egg pod, 
the cockpit clearly fills up with atmosphere from Andrew. Right. Yes. The only thing I can think of is that he says, seal yourself. Yeah. In in the pod, and so the only thing I can think of is there is a seal that like Grogu went inside, but yeah. it happens super quick. Yeah, like there's almost no time. If they'd given it a few more seconds and really had that sound of of us pod sealing, we'd feel more comfortable. But mm-hmm. as it is, we're kind of like, oh, that didn't feel like you timed that right. Yeah. Well, plus, it's, like, who's gonna? Is there like a filtration built in? Right. Because he lets in the air and then reseals it. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly so there is a filtration because he has point. to go through space. So you, yeah. so he has to have some filtration. It was just very, very quick. It was yeah. right. instant. Yes, so. yes, was, that was, was a problem. Hard, it, it was hard for me because I was like, I was on edge and I was so aware of what was going on because we're landing on Mandalore. I was like, what's going to happen? And so I was critiquing everything. So that was probably a part of it. But you're right. There's a lot of assumptions that can safely be made about the safety protocol or the Starfighter and blah, blah, blah. So. And and now that I think about it, it's they, the the writers they were kind of in a um, they were kind of in a bind. I think that they had the second half of this episode written first, and they mm-hmm. realized Grogu has to get to um, uh, to another planet. We have to get him from Din on Mandalore to Bo-Katan on I'm blanking on the name of the planet. But we have to get him. Calavara. Yeah, Calavara. We have to get him to Calavara, but. Grogu can't pilot the ship, and it doesn't make sense that it'd be on autopilot, so there has to be someone else or something else to fly the ship. So from mm-hmm. the writer's logic, there had to be a droid or something, some, someone a, a accompanying person, and that's why they went through with the logic of him needing the droid. Oh. So that makes sense from, from the writer's perspective, but not in-universe. Um, uh, in-universe, it still doesn't necessarily work as much. Um, but Clearly, I st- like... The writing moment of oh we need to undo this little Grogu uh, co-pilot chair that we made because that's dumb it it goes against our plans we need a we need a you know an astromech droid to fit there so yeah. they had to back paddle so every, they had to like go backwards you go ahead well, I was gonna say every time I talk to you guys uh, I just fucking get I get smarter like that <laughs> just makes so much sense to like obviously they wrote it backwards and that's why they needed this astromech and that's why they needed this XYZ. Like that makes, oh my gosh, my, uh, I don't know if you've heard this phrase before, but my brain is wrinkling. You guys are kidding <laughs> I've heard, I've heard that. Yep. <laughs> I think, I think they, as another byproduct of writing backwards, they probably had the idea, okay, focus on the development of Pocatan and they really did a great job mm-hmm. with it. Nailed it. So super, super great. And the moments where she interacts with, you know, with Din are pretty good too, but as a as a side effect of the things that had to happen, I do feel like Din Djarin comes across very not the Mandalorian. <laughs> he doesn't come across as the you know this guy that doesn't make these mistakes. Like he's he's the level of clumsy that we would see out of any other character but him. Do you guys agree with that? Yeah, mm-hmm. so I totally see that. I, and you could kind of like explain it away that he. And this is really hard to come across with a mask on, um, which is another complaint I have of this uh, particular episode. Lore-wise, it would be okay for him to have the helmet off. But it's you could have say that Pedro, not Pedro, sorry, that Din Djarin is going through it kind of like a, a funk, a depression, because he's clearly got this weight on him, religious-wise, for his culture, his culture, or emphasis on the word cult. Um, and... 
he maybe he's just not thinking clearly maybe he's just so single minded in this that he makes mistakes I, I don't know you it feels like you you could assume some of that as well I don't know that's that's just me filling in the gaps maybe yeah there's a lot of gap filling but you can see um, you can see the influence rubbing off on him in ways I mean at the beginning you know in season two the idea of even working with a Mandalorian that isn't wearing the mask all the time, or the idea of the idea of even associating with someone like that, like when he first meets um, uh, the the marshal, um, uh, he is like, he, yeah, he is so uh, like nervous, and he's so almost like against it. Whereas by now, he's willing to call up. Bokatan and talk to her even when her helmet's off. Like it just doesn't bother him anymore, and so I really, I really like that because it's showing that type of growth. And he really needs to have that kind of growth if he's going to get where we think he's going to get by the end of the show. Mm. <clears throat> These characters—they're uh, called the Alamites. Mm-hmm. These kind of thug-looking cavemen-looking aliens. What did y'all feel? Did y'all like the design? Were they, were they cool-looking or were they kind of like? What are these kind of mutants that were just, you know, surviving underneath, like, uh, these mines of Mandalore? I guess they just took over. They were, uh, I mean, they were kind of one note. But you know what they reminded me of was, uh, epi- or they reminded me of the Tusken Raiders, episode four. Like, it's just, we need some brutes, some, I guess you could call them natives. We just need some simple-minded, maybe even simple or single-cell organisms that are just giant dumb fighting creatures <laughs> and I told I told my uh, my wife I said in, in like 20 years we'll probably have some narrative where these people are sentient and they're indigenous people and we need to not just shoot them on sight because that's the first thing they do is just like right. blast them because <laughs> they're walking in their house or whatever so uh, they were interesting but they just kind of served a, a in this story served a purpose of like danger the uh, my thoughts were I was like, "Ooh, is that a Tall's?" And then it's not, and I was like, "Oh, okay, that's that, that's okay, I guess." Um, <laughs> uh, that would have been cool if we had had the Tall's, but but we didn't. Um, call them by name. What was the name of the creatures? Nathan said it. Oh, the Alamites. Alamites. Yeah. I I think that if this was now if this was Star Trek or some other sci-fi universe, the story would be that they actually have the same. Uh, biological ancestry as the Mandalorians as we know it, but they had yeah. different uh, uh, branching points where one went above ground and one stayed below. And so the mm. Mandalorians that went above ground became what we know as Mandalorians, and the Alamites stayed the, uh, the the kind of primitive Alamites, and that's why they grew the hair and multiple eyes and stuff. Like that's that's how Star Trek would have done that. But uh, here it's just now blast them. <laughs> Well, the Darksaber lore... Oh, go ahead, Trent, if you were going to say. Well, uh, no, no, the Darksaber is an awesome topic. I, wanna, I definitely want to get we're, on. <laughs> we're reintroduced to the idea that... And this was something brought up in Book of Book, Boba and really confused a lot of people. So when he is kind of overpowered by the Alamites, Din Djarin relies on the saber and is immediately feeling the, the effects of the weightiness of it. Mm-hmm. So... We let's just quickly for everybody let, let's recap the f- the things that we know about the dark saber is that the energy of the crystal flows through the person wielding it and the 
the really the focus, the condition of their heart and their like desires and even the the guilt and the the clarity of their conscience affect like everything about the weight of it. And so, Moff Gideon <laughs> wielded it like a like a beast, and Bo-Katan wields it like she is singularly focused and she wields it really really well. Which is, I read tons of Twitter comments of just absolute you know, crapping all over Din Djarin for looking like an idiot when he wields this. I'm like, did you watch, you know, the mm. armorer talked all about this and, you know, you, even, even, uh, John Favreau's character, uh, Paz Vizla. um, Paz tries to wield it. Yeah. And mm. he only lost because he tries to wield the dark saber and that gives like Din Djarin a chance to use his other weapons to right. like overpower him. Um, so this whole, this whole thing with the, the dark saber could have used, for me, just for these people, because I, I understood it, but mm-hmm. for these other people and for that setup, I feel it's coming to show that he will eventually be able to wield it much more easily and it'll become light. Like, there needed to be some more explanation given. Do you agree with that? This episode? I agree with that the more explanation is coming about the way the Darksaber is wielded or the weight of it all. That's my complaint that they needed more for... Yeah, the typical fan who right. clearly misunderstood. Yeah, that's a good they're point. They're just like, oh, he sucks, you know. Um, at, awesome. at this point, uh, I mean, this is if if I was Din Djarin, kind of kind of simple. Not, and I don't mean this negatively. He's he's simple minded in the fact that he's got a one track mind. He's like, I feel like he's been presenting with plenty of evidence that his cult is not great. But obviously, growing up in a cult, it's not going to be the easiest thing to break away from. But if I was him in this situation, my greatest weapon is the dark saber. But like you pointed out, tar- with, with Paz Vizsla, your greatest weapon is to drop it and let your enemy pick it up, and they get exhausted, and then you can surprise them. <laughs> That's your greatest <laughs> tool there. Um, but no, I do think they need more explanation because um, Bo-Katan is, as far as we know. Uh, well, and you guys may be able to, to elaborate with, with this more with the Clone War stuff. She's not force. She's not a force user. She's not someone who typically wields a lightsaber, um, and so, but she definitely wields it like she can. Um, and so maybe they explain that more. And I'm so glad we're getting more reason for Bo-Katan screen time. Obviously, that's going to be fleshed out. I feel like the next couple episodes, hopefully, is not just them leaving Mandalore. I hope they explore things a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah, the, the dark saber, and that's kind of its that's kind of its draw is that it's a mystery. It's been a mystery for so long um, that maybe they're just going to drip feed us the information about it. Well, I was, what I was going to say here was I think that Pedro Pascal, based off of um, uh, his time in Game of Thrones, has learned that you need to let your opponent tire themselves out before you go in for the killing blow. Um, <laughs> but um, what I was going to say with the dark saber is that I think the other question—it's not just about the dark saber lore, but a lot of people are missing that Bo-Katan wielded the dark saber for a long time. Um, uh, I don't, I was, I was going back and thinking through her episodes in Mando and then also thinking about Din's stuff in, um, Book of Boba. Did they ever mention or talk about the fact that the, that Darksaber was in Bo-Katan's possession for years? You see her wield it even in Rebels. 
And so they don't even, like, they haven't mentioned that. And I feel like if that had been mentioned, the fact, not even how the Darksaber works, but the fact that it's been in her possession. Like, when she, if if they had mentioned it in the last episode, when she says, did you give away the Darksaber? She should have had a line like, I know the power of it. I wielded it for so many years, and it was so corrupting. And If she had had this whole dialogue about it, um, then it would have... Uh, made more sense why it works so well for her because it's like riding a bike. She's been doing. She's, she did this for years, but they never explain that part. And so you're right. The the casual fan doesn't understand. So it's not just about how the dark saber works, but it's also who's who's wielded it. That is my problem. But uh, yeah. the the joke here I was going to make was it's a good thing Clavin didn't. Andrew Clavin hasn't watched this because he would be throwing a fit that she can wield it better than he can. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't get that joke. Because he but. he always complains that women wouldn't be able to handle swords like men can oh, in, in history. Oh, gotcha. What an idiot! Wow. <laughs> um, well, to to go and finish or to, to reply to what you just said, Jonathan, the the last time it was mentioned was season two finale, where it's talked about with the dark saber and you know how she used to have it, but it's all Moff Gideon saying that stuff and not coming from Din or Bo-Katan, so. It's also in the context of, like, more ownership-wise and the power of the story and ownership of the saber rather than actually using the saber. Right. So that's where the confusion lies. But here's one other thing to consider that I, it occurred to me, and tell me if you guys think this is right, but the way that we're led to believe that Din Djarin is so sincere about the creed, about his beliefs, is that the guilt in his heart right now is keeping him weighed down and then that is reflected in his inability to wield the dark saber. Mm. Is the guilt he feels for breaking the creed, and he genuinely believes that he needs to write this. And we see, obviously, that he's very persistent. This episode, like, like one tracked in the way, as soon as like he, he's not even recovered, and he's like, "No, we're going straight to the, <laughs> to the baptismal living living waters." I'm like, "I'm getting baptized right now." So um, <clears throat> that single-mindedness is reflected in. His sincerity is shown. Did you did you see that, or is that am I reading into that too much, Trent? No, no. I think that's I think that's pretty straightforward uh, in the narrative. Is that he? That's part of his. Again, it's an endearing quality of Din Djarin is that he is single minded, but he's single minded for good reasons. Um, and it was the way he was raised. It was not like he came into this cult later in life because he liked their, you know, uh, their their own simple creed. He was raised that way, and so that's all he's ever known. And it's really hard to pull yourself out of that, to, to question that, to be to be presented with information that is questioning that. Like even the Mandalorian surface being uh, cursed, you know, he was like, "Oh my gosh, she was right. It's not cursed." Um, even being presented with that, he still does not equate Bogatan's Bo- knowledge to, "Oh, it is a cult." Um, but there's still an enduring quality there, which is hard to do. So. You know, obviously, kudos to the people who created the character and did the writing. Um, but I think it comes across that way. My only complaint is that I feel like, and again, in this particular, before the end of this episode, in this particular arc of Din Djarin, we have a lore reason why he could have his helmet off more. Is because, obviously, he's already done it once. What does it hurt to do it more? Uh, mm-hmm. So it would be nice to see some of these emotions on Pedro's face, uh, just because it might come across a little better. We might see some some micro emotions that are easier to pick up on that guilt, you know, even that sort of like struggling and wrestling with questioning your upbringing. 
Um, so yeah, I, I think it comes across really well. And to give more kudos, obviously, to Din, uh, to Pedro, acting all of this with a helmet on is difficult. So. Oh, I was going to say, I, I'm really curious to find out which came first. Did they write this season with him not taking his helmet off, at least as far as we've gotten? And then Pedro got the gig where he said, uh, for, for Last of Us, and he said, I'm not going to be on set at all this season of Mandalorian. I'll only be able to do voiceover. Or is it reversed? Did he get the Last of Us gig, say, hey, this is happening, or can I can this happen? And they said, okay, and we'll write this season in such a way that it works that you're not taking helmet off. I believe it's more logical that the first would happen. I can't believe that they would change the direction of an entire series based off of that. But I would yeah. be curious to learn which came first, because um, it would color the way that I view how they're handling the character in this season. Same. I do think, though, like the choice not to do it is his commitment to do the right thing from now on. Mm. And so that's why he hasn't just been like, well, I messed up. I'll start fresh once I get right. to the baptismal. But until then, like, so, but he's, he's already committed. He's not like, I'm going to start. I'm like, I'm not going to keep doing the wrong thing over and over just because I know I can be forgiven later, you know. Right. He's, he's like, I'm not going to sin. What is the, what is the phrase? I'm not going to sin that I may receive grace more abundantly. So that grace meant about. Yeah. about. Okay, that's yes. the idea. <laughs> uh, that's it. This is awesome. That's so good. That's a great point. And it speaks to his simple mind. So, excellent. That's excellent, yeah. Uh, Jonathan, why don't you take a second and talk about just the amazing cinematography with regard to the city, the ruins, the design of some of these beautiful shots that we got. Well, you know, a big problem I had with moments in season two and uh, of Mando and even with uh, uh, Book of Boba and even a little bit with Kenobi was there were times where I was just like, oh, you're on the volume. You're obviously on the volume. Like, you can't cover this up. <laughs> and I felt that in the first portion when we're in Pelimoto's place. And then also when we're, um, when he lands the Starfighter, I was like, yeah, you can kind of <laughs> see. But, but once he goes in there and you see the ruins and then he jetpacks down and you see him going through. Did you, so there was some of the, you talked about like, Still shots comparisons between uh, scenes in the Clone Wars and then the current state of, of the series. Yeah. Did you want to make some of those comparisons or talk about it? Well, they did just such a good job of making the scope work because they'll be where characters are standing, where characters in the Clone Wars had stood, uh, but. The, and so the scope is the same, but instead you have like ruins as opposed to like a bright city. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess this actually kind of works well because if they were doing that kind of shot in live action of the Clone Wars, that'd be super expensive with the lighting and with all the people and with how uh, detailed it'd have to be. But since it's dark, you know, you're in a dome. Since it's kind of in ruins, you can just generate stuff easier. So it's probably a lot cheaper to do it this way. And it just so happens that the story actually works here. So it just, it, it really worked, the fact that you had that. And then once he gets down into the caves, like if it, the, the caves just felt 
like a cave would feel. They're winding. They're not just straight across. And they don't just feel mono size where a set would be because they have to keep reusing it as the characters are walking through. It feels like it'll get wider here and narrower here and, and stuff like that. So the, the design in this episode, the production design, was, was quite good. Mm. We talked about some like uh, Minds of Moria vibes. From yeah, Morgan's, yeah. Even the music a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, this is not this is, this is not as highbrow, obviously, as Lord of the Rings. But it reminded me of the uh, the first New York in Futurama. Yeah, you know, obviously in, in, in the TV <laughs> show Futurama, it's New New York is the city on top, and they what they did is they just built New York over old New York, uh, <laughs> and so they go into the sewers, and the sewers is just old New York. And it reminded me of that because you're going underground and seeing the cityscape and. Uh, I don't know. That's just me. I know that's not obviously the. No, I like it. It's not the reference. I like it. <laughs> and that's the way Coruscant was. Too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just built yeah. on top of it, the, you know, the gross stuff as you go down. Um, yeah, I, I really wanted to explore more of it because it looked a whole lot like the Crashed Venator episode or level mm-hmm. in in Fallen Order. We talked about that. Um, but I, I loved I loved the exploration in in Fallen Order with it. Mm. So it was so familiar, but. Think about, there was another thing I want to mention with, at kind of in the same part of the episode, was narratively, you have a couple of instances where Din Djarin and then Bo-Katan later speak to the audience, but at the same time, they're really speaking to the child, they're speaking to Grogu, and they're giving exposition, yeah. and it really works actually quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems almost like this is the role of a narrator, because you're telling us history, you're telling us uh, location of planets in relation to Mandalore. Because you get Kalivala and you get uh, Cordova. No, not Cordova. Um, what's it called? Concordia. Concordia. Concordia, where they were exiled. Obviously, that's where the Watch was exiled. Um, and Satine and her family of, of peace-loving Mandalorian stayed on, on the planet. But the history is a little bit alluded to when Bo-Katan also tells her story. And it's really, really cool to have confirmation Grogu understands. Mm-hmm. And he's not just like looking up there going, huh? You know, <laughs> he's listening. He may not be able to communicate back, but there's more and more likelihood that there's some kind of mental block or some kind of developmental thing where he understands a whole lot more than we realize. Because not only did he understand here, he led the right, right to the way. It's just a communication thing. So hmm. I'm curious how, that, how that's been worked on. And, of course, there was the foreshadowing. Pelimoto, he said Pele, you know, his first words. Right. So I think in an interview, wasn't it, wasn't it like Dave is like, yeah, you might, st- you might start talking sooner than you think or something like that. Right. Uh, so so that's, that's for the best. Uh, good, good work development there and good, like, narrative use with that exposition so that it's not, like, forced in your face. Right. Anyway. I, I thought about exactly that, but only, like, if they took it out. Because it would be mostly silent, like the the starship scene and him walking through the cave, or or Bo-Katan walking through the caves again with with Grogu. If you took that that conversation out or that exposition out, even though it's one way between a char- two characters, the audience would just be watching a, a silent film at that point. So I, I mean. Think- I, I would be okay with that. My favorite episode of The Mandalorian still is the second episode where you go like 15 minutes or maybe it's like 13 minutes where there's not a single line of dialogue in English. 
And I I loved that because yeah. it was able to tell it exclusively through actions and through gestures and through silence. And I was like, that was so impressive. But I get that they need they're 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 doing things in this episode that are setting up things later. The stuff between Bo Katan and Grogu is surely because we know that at some point later on in the season something happens between them. So they are surely setting that up. And then, of course, between uh, Mando and Grogu, there's some setup as well. So it's like it's natural that it has to happen. So I get it. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I loved the, the, the silent film of the second episode. Yeah. Did you guys think about all the armor pieces that were, like, underneath? <laughs> and how much, how much is just Beskar lying around there? Like, oh, my gosh. Enough to... Yes. Enough to, to, like, for the armorer to make new sets for so many people and have so many foundlings have new armor. So there's, like, it's a reservoir of right, just right for the taking. Right. And maybe that will come into play, like, hey, there's, there's a whole lot of good stuff here if we want to go and, like, if we want to do this. And that could be, like, you know, Bo-Katan's, because we know she, what she's going to be coming back for, like, right away. Oh, um, yeah. But that could be where... Her clan versus the watch kind of bump heads for the first time. Who knows? Um, could the, be the the uh, uh, you, you when you pointed when we were watching the episode and you pointed that that out that they had all that stuff. It reminded me of a Christian metaphor, but I'll make it Star Wars uh, worthy. Which which was uh, if Din gets to Mando Heaven, he gets there and the angel uh, he says, "I have all I brought all my expensive uh, Beskar armor," and the the angel says, "Oh, you have sewage pipe uh, material. Great, because it's like that's like in that's in." <laughs> inconsequential comparatively to how great heaven is. It's like, you know, I'm imagining that there's like a city for Mando where the everything is so a powerful. A Beskar city. Yeah. A Beskar <laughs> city where it's like Mando gets there and it's like his he, he's nothing special. Like his his Mando armor barely is important. Like that's anyway, that's what that's what that's where my mind went. I have so, to I have to share a joke that my wife made during the, during the show. And oh, was, oh please do. Please so, do please do or he was walking through the ruins, and I, and I just happened to just say, like, oh, he's, he's leaving the baby in the car. You know, just made a joke. And she said, <laughs> she said, the best car. <laughs> <laughs> just, oh, she's a keeper. Yeah, honestly. Yeah. Christina's hilarious. The best oh, car. Goodness. So anyway, um, no, no, the only thing I was going to point out, and this is, this is just one of those things that is just circumstantial, but it's interesting to me. Um, Mandalorian season... Three episode two has this moment where he's pulling the helmet out of the rubble, and at the same time we have Bad Batch and um, Crosshair is pulling, or maybe it's Mayday is pulling a helmet out of snow, out of like similar scenario. Yeah, I know it's circumstantial, but it just feels really cool to see those back to back. So anyway, and they were not originally meant to be shown on the same day when they were when they were in the planning stages. Uh, Bad Batch was supposed to come out several months earlier than it did, so this is just a half. Uh, as Bob Ross would say, a happy little coincidence. Right, yeah. And it's just fun. It's just a fun thing. So I noticed that and I was like, oh, that's cool. That's weird, but cool. Yeah, let's talk about this um, reptilian droid eye monster creature. You ready? This thing is creepy as all hell. Oh. And it is, one, I'm super, super glad that they didn't make it like a joke or silly. Yes. We talked about this already. And had they done that, it would have totally ruined it. Um, everybody's already making the general grievous things like was this a design like it and I think 
there was like reports that it was a sketch done for General Grievous that like mm-hmm. they didn't use, but they're like, hey, let's just use this here. And I know Star Wars does that all the time. They're like, oh, hey, yeah. let's just reuse this design that was already professionally done, didn't get used. Hey, it's really good though. Let's pull it in and you know, put it in this other project. So. Wow, how cool that, that he even has multiple forms. Yeah. He's got, like, the warrior mode. He's got, like, his his uh, Hulkbuster armor, too. Um, <laughs> even a Disney theme. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at least it wasn't red, you know. Um, no, but, I, uh, I, I, I loved creepy. it. I loved it. Really it, was, it was kind of a horror element. Um, yeah. My wife was a vis- visual, visibly grossed out by it. Um, and I don't know if you guys had this... It, it reminded me of um, obviously General Grievous was the first thought because an organic and robot thing were working together. But in a similar way, mm-hmm. I was thinking of um, the High Republic books. There's uh, some elements of oh, yeah. machinery and you know human or- organics and robotics meeting together. That was uh, that was kind of a fun thing. But overall, it was a very horror element, uh, and it was definitely T for Teen as we said before the podcast and joke. Uh, <laughs> when when uh, uh, the, the moment where it gets knocked down and then the head kind of like con- disconnects and starts crawling off, it reminded me of uh, in Pirates of the Caribbean where they knock off the head of that thing and then it turns out that it has legs and it starts crawling away. That's, wh- that's where my mind went. But this is where my 4D story comes in. So I was watching this in the morning and I was eating breakfast and just the night before we had had an ant infestation in our apartment. Um, which has since, I have since dealt the, the killing blow. Good. I have killed all the ants. But at the time, <laughs> I had not. And so I'm watching the episode. During that scene that that thing comes out, and the ants start crawling on me. And I was like, ah! <laughs> oh, oh. When you said 4D, I was like, is it a tablet? Like he's looking at his phone. His <laughs> no, like, like I felt something creepy and crawly on my legs and on my hands. Uh, that I was trying to like frantically oh, get it off, get it off. Well, <laughs> while, it's while I'm watching this, so I was already on edge because I was like, that thing is gross and creepy. That's fantastic. That's the way to watch so, this. It's, yeah, if, you're right. if, if you're listening to this episode before you watch the episode for some reason, get an ant infestation. <laughs> just, just get a tarantula <laughs> and like, like I'll cook it and eat it later. But first, I'm gonna let it crawl on me while I don't watch a scary part. Ten out of ten um, would recommend. <laughs> you you hate the scary spider episode. That's your least favorite episode of Mandalorian. Yes, uh, it is. No, I'm not two like episode two. I'm not actually so. like I'm not actually terrified of it. Um, uh, I'm just like that's gross. Yeah. So, and I think the part of the reason that they let this design be so dark is they had to be scary enough to scare Grogu. He's mm-hmm. able to, like, easily handle, like, an Alamite warrior or whatever. Just force pushes him like nothing. Um, but he's not able to free Din Djarin, even with the Force and even with his training and advancement. And I think part of that is just a mental block. He was he was afraid. And, of course, Din, Din told him to go get Bo-Katan, and they needed to go get. But that is part of why I think the fear aspect was big to Grogu. And it makes sense because a big part of his story this season is going to be, we already saw the flashback in the trailer, like what's his like history, what's his trauma, and like a lot of it's obviously going to be some Order 66 stuff, mm. um, but, but that stuff is, is going to be important to the story. Um, when we get to Bo-Katan, she's like 
I think she makes the comment like, um, I got to get rid of this guy once and for all. I'm like, wait, wait is yeah. she going to like shoot down his ship or something? Like, what's the deal? After thinking about it, I feel like it was like more of a solicitation kind of thing. She was just like, I just need to get this guy from bothering me. <laughs> I'm trying to sulk. I'm trying to have a, you know, have a mope here and you just keep knocking on my door. So at first though, that dialogue makes it sound like she's going to go yeah. just shoot him. <laughs> That's that's the problem with this scene is that the dialogue isn't perfectly written because she goes from I need to get rid of him to I just want him to leave to yeah. oh Grogu I'll come help you like right now like there needed to be some more convincing some more wait where's Mando yeah. that type of uh, <laughs> like like Last Jedi wait where's Han they needed that kind of a that kind of a moment I thought. You, you might even be able to timestamp the second that she's done saying that dialogue is when the episode gets good. Because after hmm. that, it, yeah. just, it stops being uh, all these logical problems we've talked about where you have to kind of fill in the gaps or, or even the, the dialogue's kind of written backwards. It feels like from that moment, they re- had the idea of Bo-Katan needs to hear from Old Yeller that Timmy failed on the well... I really relate to her here, though. She's like, you know, um, why, why did you come over without calling first? Like when a friend shows up and you're just like, I'm busy, I'm doing stuff. Okay, it's good to see you and all. I like you, but why? Get call first or text me. Just get, you know. Um, So, I, I, I totally now that I'm gonna see that next time I'm watching, I'm like, okay, this is the part where it gets good from this moment forward. And I, I really enjoyed her, even though we basically retread and just follow the steps. When when you have such good visuals, it's it's no problem seeing them again from another perspective. Um, talk about the Jonathan laughing about the whole like the the floating egg, Grogu's egg. Like, oh no, he's gonna <laughs> fall. <laughs> <laughs> right, I thought that. Yes, you thought that too. <laughs> we we I, 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 when I saw that and I saw his egg go right over the thing, I was like, "Oh no, it's gonna drop right down!" And then it turns out, no, it's fine. He can't. He'll be. But I had that moment of panic. Yeah, we don't know how that works. We don't know the egg is so mysterious. Wait, wait, how, do, how is it possible to to float like that? And also, how is it perfectly following along? How is it like? I'm sure there are logic. That they could explain, but mm-hmm. uh, when Nate, I was with Nathan, Nathan's like, "Well, Yoda's pod was able to float in Episode Two, and I'm like, I still don't understand that one either." <laughs> Maybe the tech for like childcare was so great in the like uh, prequel era that it just like I don't know. Maybe it's got sensors on uh, a 360 or a you know four maybe 4D. We'll use that term again. Maybe that's how <laughs> it's working. But at this point, that tech is more impressive to me than a lightsaber. I'm like, what's going on here? <laughs> right. I think I think I like, want that. You know, Stephen Hawking just designed it for himself at the right. start. <laughs> <laughs> um, nice. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's rest in peace. Well, he's he's not. But um, he's not in peace. <laughs> <laughs> Where we are, we are resting. Moving on. <laughs> moving no, he's, on. He's got um, a good sense of humor. He would think this. Okay, real quick, like two minutes. The the argument that we need to make is uh, Bo-Katan lost to um, Moff Gideon. Din Djarin defeats Moff Gideon. And so now you've got, well, is Bo-Katan able to beat Din Djarin? 
and there's a lot of comparisons. She looks. Go ahead, Trent. This I was hoping he'd bring this up because <laughs> technically, Dinjarin got defeated by the weird, creepy, crawly ant monster. I'll call him that for now. Um, he got defeated by the ant monster. Bo-Katan defeated the ant monster. So uh, currently, in my eyes, and I realize this is not. That one for one. She yeah. is the master of the Elder Wand. She is the master of the Elder <laughs> Wand because she <laughs> defeated Dumbledore. So <laughs> that is, I love that reference. That is perfect. <laughs> so anyway, no, it's, yes, it's like a, it's a whole argument, right? We yeah. got to make this argument. Yeah. So, well, if you compare them, they fought the same enemies. It looks like they're about on the same skill level, but she just doesn't have this issue with the dark saber. So she looks way better, and she's not tired. Later on, you know, obviously he's very tired. He's drained of his blood, so yeah. I mean, clearly he's he's not he's not in good shape. Um, <clears throat> I just wonder that you take it back to the Beskar spear. If what if Bo-Katan? Well, no, I bet that's what Moff Gideon had. He probably had the spear, and that's what he beat her with when she had the dark saber. Because then he gives the spear to his underling, because he has the dark saber, and that's where Mando gets the spear from. Yeah. <gasps> what? Could that have been what happened? <laughs> maybe we don't know. Maybe, maybe. could have been. I but do want to see Or maybe the spear's the, the reason that he was able to beat Gideon, whereas she couldn't. Because like she probably tried to to fight him again after and get the saber back and lost. Are we a hundred percent sure that Gideon got the saber from Katan? Or that well. If yeah. if he didn't, there is it's it's like a, I got the, uh, I got it from Duquesne, who got it from the something brothers, who got it from so and so, who stole it from me. It's that type of thing because she has it in Rebels, mm-hmm. and she yeah. was the leader of Mandalore up until the Purge, mm-hmm. and he was a part of the Purge, and he's the one who ends the lightsaber. So either it was she lost it directly to him, or there was something in the middle. But I think it makes more sense and it's just cleaner of a story. Just to he'll say, be back. She uh, lost it. He'll to probably him. give us that answer himself. I've got yeah. a short because he loves he likes this stuff. Yeah, I've, I've got a short okay. theory. I'll keep it quick here, but this is just just the, just speaking to Moth Gideon's like I don't know villain nature. This is how I see it playing out. And Disney executives, if you're listening to this, you can take this for free. There's <laughs> there is some awesome character who's working for the Empire, and he happens to report to Moth Gideon, and he's so awesome that he defeats Bo-Katan in combat wins the Darksaber, brings it back to Moth Gideon and explains to him, you have to win this through combat. And then Moth Gideon, just as a very cheap shot, shoots the guy in the back or in the face or something. And then that's how Moth Gideon gets it. It's just like through a cheap trick. Because that seems like something Moth Gideon would do. That seems like they, and something Star Wars would do. Something like, I I could see that happening in Clone Wars or Rebels. Just a quick boom, Mm. it's mine now. I have you now, or so something, was, you know. That was the joke I was going to make, was, you know, uh, Bo-Katan, she had the lightsaber, or darksaber, <laughs> she was doing all her cool sword stuff, and then uh, he just pulled, uh, uh, Moff Gideon just pulls out a gun, Indiana Jones style, and just goes, <laughs> 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 mm-hmm. uh, Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway. So, after she rescues him, we get the cute uh, soup scene. As always, he shares some with Grogu after he has some soup. Got his instant ramen, or pod soup as they called it. Mm, we can get that. We'll, we'll probably be able to get that in the next year at uh, Galaxy's Edge. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's For those out there with uh, that are you know, Twitch or, or Zoomers, pog soup. It's poggers. You know. I wonder if that's <laughs> Poggers. Uh, <laughs> oh, poggers. 
No, <laughs> I really enjoy the dialogue that happens here, though, because you've got somebody who's truly, like, I guess you you would say both ends of the Mandalorian spectrum, and they're they've such rep- representations of different sides. She's talking about all this stuff, and he's fascinated because, like, like she is Mandalorian. She was ruling ruled it for a time. So, like, the stories she's telling, he's he's really really interested in them. Um, and as she's talking about the city, and then of course she's like, "You'll never find it without me." Even though he's like, "We're going," even though I'm like not not healed yet. Um, that's when we get this great part. My favorite part um, was the the moment she talks about her father, mm. and after of course saying that he died defending Mandalore, you get the the pause, and she turns and looks, and like this is the way. Really, really well done. Like John Favreau. Anything Mandalorian, he he just understands it so well and nails it. Really, really, really solid moment. Loved that. Did you get? Was that your fa- one of your favorites, or maybe your favorite, Jonathan, and then Trent? Uh, no, my favorite moment is later. <laughs> okay, uh, then we know which one it is. But <laughs> yeah, I don't. I haven't really picked a favorite moment. But to speak to your point about Din Djarin saying like, "This is the way." He had such a weight there that Bo-Katan didn't. So obviously she tells the story about her father, which is, it's old hat to her. She has known it her whole right. life and she's probably told it a lot. And he stops and you can just, even with a mask on, you can see this just weight where he's like, he stops and he looks at her and he goes, this is the way. But his body language is like, I'm so sorry that this happened to your father. I'm sorry for your loss. Like, it's just, it's there's a weight there. And again, it's impressive to, to act with a mask on. But Bo-Katan kind of looks at him kind of like, what? <laughs> you know, she has this sort of just odd look on her face after that. Maybe. No. I, viewed, I viewed it as like, you should be proud of your father. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. And, and, like, it affected her. It, it was a surprise. And, yeah. We talked about it last episode, Jonathan. Like, with a character like Din Djarin, the main thing you need to show t- when talking about, like, a Paragon hero is the change effect that they cause mm. in those around them. Mm-hmm. And that's when you really experience the most satisfaction to an audience perspective. So seeing her gain maybe just a tinge of respect for the watch because of their commitment and him obviously having gained some respect for her because she talks about how she took the creed and of course all this stuff. Like there's definitely some moving towards each other in terms of alignment's sake down whether or not they obviously will go their separate ways and end up fighting we don't know but uh yeah i think it was i this, think it was both of that what were you gonna say jonathan oh it was a couple of things one is i have like a story pitch and this would probably be like a novel or a or a comic or something that they'd have to do but i i'd like to see this where it turns out that uh Bo was kind of getting a little bit rebellious or something in their inner teen years and uh, she uh, was experimenting with ways of Mandalore, and she got in trouble. And her dad went to go save her, and in the process dies. And so she is so angry about it that she becomes like a regular fighter for Mandalore. But her older sister, who is now the one saddled with being the leader of Mandalore, resents her and her father for the fight and for doing this and and gets pushed into pacifism because she believes had he just we just been pacifists mm-hmm. nobody would have died mm-hmm. and therefore that's why two characters from the exact same upbringing can have totally opposite 
um, yeah. uh, perspectives on life. I think that's a great pitch for a story. Um, so call me. Bob, Bob Iger, I know you're listening, yeah. Bob. I know you're listening. That is <laughs> the pacifist element of the Mandalorian culture and that struggle and that, that, that tension is it's a string on a guitar that when you pluck it, it plays a beautiful note. And I feel like Jonathan's right here. So, Bob, I know you're listening. Please put resources behind that. That's so good. Uh. My other thought here was this. I After this episode, we ha- I saw a lot of people on Twitter. And this is the type of thing that people on Twitter do. But a lot of people on Twitter are now shipping Din and uh, Bo, which I do not I do not, mm-hmm. but, I, I but get it. especially I get since it. she's so much, especially since she's so much older than him, she's gotta be <laughs> no, like the same age. Surely no. When in Clone Wars, she's what in her mid twenties, and he's like an eight year old. <laughs> Let's see. Well, just 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 for the actor standpoint, Pedro Pascal is forty seven years old. And Katie Sackhoff. Katie Sackhoff. Well, the biggest problem is Katie Sackhoff is playing a character who is massively yeah. older than she is. Yeah, she's 42. massively older. She's forty. Yes. Pedro. So you're right. You're yeah. right. On an actor perspective, the audience, the general audience, would be fine. Yeah. But those of us who know her character is supposed to be like in her like what fifties or sixties at this point, and he's That's like not maybe. Ter- <clears throat> it's not 30s. terribly different than like uh, Padme and Anakin. That. There was a visual difference yeah. there that was kind of awesome. okay. There's, there's, okay, maybe. I think there's. I think there's a possibility there. There's a possibility. Maybe. I don't. Um, I don't ship them. But I would. <laughs> if if I did, if I did, this is how you can make it go. This this is by the way where I thought Game of Thrones should have gone with their final season. But you can make it. She represents one side of Mandalore, the mask mm. off. He represents the mask on, and when you put them together, they are able to effectively. <laughs> Uh, conjoin the two parts of Mandalore and rebuild Mandalore together. <clears throat> and then if they had like a kid, they could. That kid is the the symbol of the union of 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 the different factions of Mandalore. I yeah. still think personally, if I'm doing it, I would do it without that. I would do it just as Mando because I think Mando himself can unite the factions. The, <clears throat> the dark saber brings in mm-hmm. Bo-Katan's faction and his creed, his beliefs bring in his. So you don't need it, her for it. But there is an interesting way to make it, if you did ship them, that you could do that. Because I really wanted them to do that with Jon Snow and uh, Daenerys in Season 8. And that did mm. not happen. Mm-hmm. So they could do like an upside-down Spider-Man kiss where she takes his masks off. Just enough to kiss <laughs> <laughs> Romance. You guys are way off. <laughs> Trent, you... Um, you did send me down a, a, a great thought a second ago as you were talking about the guitar string and all of that beautiful stuff. The, the line that really I connected to when you were talking um, is, and this is something I might expect to hear John Favreau say in an interview. If he's asked a question about Bo-Katan's inner mind and the things that might be happening, and maybe, maybe even you know Katie Sackhoff would say this, but it's almost like a part of her sister is, is in her head... And as a filter that she she said every mm-hmm. action that she takes, she can hear her sister in her head saying, you know, think about this. And the line that I think about is um, she says that the thing that truly pains her is the Mandalorian infighting like before the purge. Mm. Like, like that fighting, that infighting, that's what she is pained by now. And that's the type of thing that her sister would say. And so <clears throat> like one, I think that that pacifist group that you're talking about it will ha- it will happen. We will see them eventually. Like that's unavoidable. Um, 
But I, I, I definitely feel like this is like John would would say about that line. He's like that line of, of this episode reveals so much about where her thought process is and where she's not just out for herself and leadership for power. She really wants to unite everybody to protect them and to be, bring them together and stop the infighting and unify her people in a very altruistic motive. So I very like revealing about her character. So, but good observation that I just thought that that might, if you had anything else to add on top of that, if you agree with that or I, I have something to, to that. I had something to, yeah, to just expand upon that. Cause you guys, you guys have kind of like, again, wrinkled my brain on this, but Bo-Katan has this, she's, she is trying to change him by informing him about the cult and then, uh, his, his upbringing. And clearly he's challenging her upbringing because when she's speaking about the, the creed that she had to recite, when she did her ritual of bathing in the waters, she's speaking about it in a sort of a laissez-faire, like it was just something we did to appease the optics of the politics. Mm-hmm. And when he, when she watches him walk into the water, he is so reverent when he does it mm-hmm. that I feel like it has an effect on her. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and obviously that is multiplied a billion times by the event that happens after that because she even speaks of the mythosaur in a sort of like eh whatever it's just sort of a thing we have and it, it's it, a myth a sore right yeah she emphasizes Stop. that and it's like it. she has this sort of like rebellious nature from her teenage years that has crept up into her jaded adulthood which we probably all have and when you're met with someone who is still true to the cause even if that cause has its flaws, pun rhyme intended, whatever, uh, it, it has an effect on you. And so she's affecting oh, him, yeah. he's affecting her. And so you know what, Jonathan? Th- through me talking, I now ship him. I now ship him. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, just well, wanted to, I want to add that. Sorry, I'm just kidding. We'll definitely can't. inspire each other. So, yeah. 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 Where, where I was going to go with that was... The whole concept of them talking about Mandalore and him being like a believer, thinking it's true, and her being the, nah, not really, it's not true, and then having the realization at the end of the episode when she sees the mythosaur, mm-hmm. oh, it is true. It, it, it reminded me, and someone else put it online a little bit better uh, explanation, but there's the sequence in Force Awakens where Finn and Rey are talking with Han, and they have the conversation, and... Uh, Han has the line, it's true, all of it. I used to thought it was uh, religious mumbo-jumbo. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's that kind of line. And it feels yeah. a little bit forced uh, forced in that movie, in The Force Awakens, because it's Han that's delivering it. We haven't seen the intervening years. We haven't seen him become a true believer in the Force, that type of thing. But here, they don't even have that line. That line's not any here. And yet the sentiment is perfectly felt because yes. we've had from yes. episode one of the Mandalorian where you saw the mythosaurs uh, skeleton imagery over the Mando uh, hub and then you've had discussions uh, you used to ride the great mythosaur and then you have in this mm-hmm. episode them talking about you just have the perfect <clears throat> setup that it, it's the look the look on her face even though you're just seeing her mask the look on her face is oh my goodness it's real my worldview is changing right now. So yeah. that's why that's why like the episode the the landing stuck so much. It's not just oh cool creature. It's that you have without using 
cheesy dialogue or anything, or even any dialogue, you have effectively con- conveyed a lot of character development. Speaking That's of what the- lingers about Star Wars, like that feeling of belief, mm-hmm. hope. When it makes you feel that way, it just that's why you keep coming back. Mm. That's the type of thing that I want everything that I want, like every every series to give me is that type of feeling of like making you believe in something. And you see the armorer believes it. Bo Katan doesn't believe it. Like the armor is a believer. Bo Katan's like this jaded heart, but no. And so now what's gonna happen? That's kind of the question. It's like is she what is she gonna do about this whole thing? Because we know Obviously, that the dark saber was her goal. Now, is her goal going to be to tame the mythosaur? Is that is because like, I think if if anything, that's probably more of a like a figure of power, you know, to demonstrate to her followers. Like, yeah, the whole dark saber thing. How about this? I've tamed a mythosaur. Like that's right. It, it, from a writer's <laughs> room, they were like, okay. You guys think it's going to be cool to see him ride a uh, to see Boba ride a rancor? We're gonna have. Din and or uh, a bow ride a mythosaur and at with their, the scope of it. At their wedding. They're going to do it at, at their, their wedding. wedding. <laughs> no, uh, we're, so, we're going, we're going to write this comic. We're going to do this fan fiction now. <laughs> so oh, I feel like in, in my mind, it, this is head, head cannon. Bo-Katan is watching Din Djarin walking to a pool of water wearing Beskar, which cannot be buoyant at all. And so, obviously, he could have he could have been pulled down by the mythosaur, or he slipped and then fell down the ravine wearing this very heavy metal. And so, in her mind, she's thinking, "God, what an idiot! He's not only indoctrinated <laughs> by a cult, he thinks that he can swim in Beskar." And so, she's going down there, and that's her last thought: "As I'm rescuing this idiot, she's pulling up the idiot, and then all of a sudden, she sees the mythosaur, and that just sort of like, like you said, Jonathan, it just." It shifts. It like huge paradigm shift in her mind and her beliefs and everything she's grown up hearing. Finally, connects with what she's seeing in a very terrifying, almost Job sense. When it's like this yeah. is the this is the you know the danger that I have and it's whatever in the creation. And so she's having this. And honestly, it might be the only on-screen cuss word we ever hear from a Star Wars character. But it's underwater, so all you hear is boop 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 boop, and this water comes out <laughs> of her head. Um, Dank Farrick. It comes out, and she... I can only imagine she has a... And not... I know that there's a cult or a culture in this with Dank, or the Din Djarin's uh, upbringing, but she kind of has almost a religious experience when she sees this. It's a visual uh, experience that she re- reacts to audibly, and so she's going to be reeling from this, and I'm curious to see where her character goes after this. Like, what does this do for her? So, anyway... So my I now have logic questions here. Uh, back when Mandalore was at its height, everything was hunky dory. They have all the lights and stuff. Like, did they not see the Mythosaur down there? Because they had lights at this time. Or it's like if they have that big pool there, did they not like clean that pool out every once in a while to make it appropriate for the king's daughter to to bathe in it or to probably to do, sacred? Like, so it's sacred, yeah, say- but like. Maybe it's maybe would, maybe that's the argument, but it's like they how did do you not too much like swimming in there? They're like, ah, there used to be, but we we don't actually go swimming in it. Like we don't like go down there and check. Still, I, I I'm still that. wondering how do you not notice a giant creature just like lying down in there? Like it's not like it's like a little thing that they missed. It's like how did you not know? Or or 
what I would prefer for them to say is that no, they like the like the the clergy of the clergy of um, Mandalore knew that there was still the creature in there, and they specifically made the waters holy so that or called them holy waters to discourage people from actually going in, so that people wouldn't find out that the mythosaurs are still real. I, I like this because that means that those dudes are standing there just. Sweating bullets when Bo-Katan. sweating bullets when she goes <laughs> yeah, in. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. They're like, like, don't notice, don't notice, don't notice. <laughs> I like that idea. It could be, you know, it could be a number of things. The mine is so massive, and the waters are, are vast and deep. Similar to uh, Dark Disciple, there's a creature down in the deep right. in the water. In that, yep, um, yep. Well, good book. It, it just and it also reminded me of the uh, the monster in Solo, the hyperspace or the yeah, yeah. It did monster. remind me of that. Where it's just sort of like this creature in an abyss. So it could be uh, that, or it could be maybe it was a baby and it grew up because it's had years to just develop over time. We don't know anything about the mythosaur, and that's sort of the beauty of it. Is it's just it's a mythic creature. But I hope that we learn more about the Darksaber. And this is this is what I've liked about the Mandalorian anyway, is, that the, is the hope of learning more about the Mandalorians, learning more about the Darksaber, learning more about the mythosaur. This is... In, this is that hope incarnate of all these unique qualities of Star Wars that it's just wrapped up in a, a uh, uh, what's it called live action experience, and it's just it's awesome. It's just an incredible moment. Did either of you think about it, the fact it's the second time that Bo-Katan has jumped into the water to save Din Djarin? Right, I in the I, the heiress the first time that she appears. They're on this boat with, like, the creature in it, and it swallows, like, Baby Yoda, and he's trapped under the gate, and she shows up and rescues him from the water. She has to dive into the water, and, yeah, so... And they use the little... same music cue as that oh, uh, nice. here. The bum, 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 uh, which was good. But I have actually a note that I, I shared on Twitter that I thought was pretty funny uh, that mm. uh, the, the podcast 1138 shared. It said... Din, buddy, that would have been an Im- exceptionally embarrassing way to die. <laughs> Ten minutes later, Din, buddy, that would have been an exceptionally embarrassing way to die. <laughs> that la- watch that last drop, that last step. It's it's quite a drop. Um, did, okay, so did he get pulled down by the mythosaur? No, he didn't. No, get no. Down. I think okay. I think it was the he weight. Was, of he it. had his blood drained. He was tired as all get out. Oh yeah. He missed a step, and his armor immediately. Like carried him down. I mean, quickly. I mean, so quickly. You have to imagine that thing is not buoyant at all, and so yeah. But I'm um, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. I'm just curious. Also, how does a jetpack work underwater? Because if it's supposed to be using some sort of fire-based technology, which most jetpacks have that kind of like a ignition. Called a rising phoenix, sir, and it's a phoenix can fly underwater. Didn't you know that? Yeah. No, uh, but I'm just. Yeah, I think you can see where I'm it's going with this. I wanted it's to, a good question. I wanted to speak to this a little bit because obviously there's there's a ton of like um, Star Wars as sort of sci-fi fantasy, but in, in uh, the real world there is un, there is underwater welding that happens like on oil rigs. Really, those people are paid. If you want to like if you want to make good money and you're maybe you don't have necessarily a lot to like fear underwater underwater welding is one of the like most dangerous jobs out there. Uh, but they do plasma torches underwater, which is awesome. Oh my gosh, it's so awesome. But uh, that's what it made me think of, is maybe those jetpacks are putting off so much heat, but at the same time, it's like, how do you even keep your pants on when you're flying that around? Because they would definitely burn right. off. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's 
There, there is, there is something to support that with plasma torches, uh, with underwater welding. That's what I thought of when she was doing that. I was like, man, that, that must be putting off some like crazy heat. But this, this line of thought reminds me of Nathan. Remember when we had the fire at uh, Shoals, uh, where we had to clear out the building and the, redo mm-hmm. the carpet and stuff. Well, mm-hmm. uh, if it turns out the fire was caused because the light bulb in the fish tank in one of the classrooms mm-hmm. caught fire. Yeah, it was fire. an aquarium. It was an aquarium. But the, the line, the, the response everyone had at the time was, how does a fish tank catch on fire? It's water. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so that's what this made me think of. There you go. So real quickly, I do want to try and get to talk about Bad Batch. Yeah. So let's, let's do a quick rating of this and then spend a couple of minutes just very quickly talking about what was in a like, really fantastic episode of The Bad Batch. Um, my ranking for Chapter 18 of Mandalorian, 8.5. Very, very good. Jonathan? I'll go 9, even though I had all those criticisms. Because the ending, like, mm. the ending is so good, it excuses yes. a lot of what comes before it. <laughs> yeah. I think that's good. I was going to do 8.5 just because it was, like, the, be- the beginning was so just sort of whatever. Mm-hmm. It just, it feels like they could have cut out the first half. And even if you gave me a 20-minute episode or a 15-minute episode that was just this, I'd have been content. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I definitely think that was it. at least worthy of an 8. A 9, I think, would be on the high end of my review. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Very good. I, I, I'm in agreement. Uh, so real quickly, like, uh, Trent, we basically have reviewed every episode of The Bad Batch, but we do them sometimes in, like, two-episode chunks, mm-hmm. um, especially some of the more filler episodes. And we actually didn't talk about last week's episode. We were totally focused on Mandalorian. I enjoyed last week, but this week's episode was really good. So we're going to talk about that one. This week's episode was directed by Nathaniel Villanueva, who is, if you guys know, one of our previous favorite episodes was also directed by him. Uh, he, he's very, very good, and uh, written by Jennifer Corbett again. Um, but this is a crosshair-centric episode. My favorite episode was the third, I think. That's mm-hmm. the one that was like um, the solitary clone, is what it's yeah. called. And the, I just want to say, like, the tactful way that you have to handle adult themes in a kid's show could not have been better handled than it was in this particular episode. Like, you get the themes of, like, abusing troops. Like, like as a kid, you see, wow, this is wrong. But you see death. You see, like, consequences. You see horrible. And then you see Crosshair finally break. I cheered <laughs> i kind of warned jonathan like i literally was like yes because i didn't expect like crosshair to literally shoot this <laughs> lieutenant uh you know s- scumbag basically who's like a terrible representation but he is the epitome of the new empire he really he he embodies all of the characteristics that we hate like, and, and so, and because of that, he definitely deserved to die. And so that was a reward that we all got. Um, but kind of just, Jonathan, I know you, you probably have a lot to say, but I really want to know what Trent says, having jumped in and like not seen any of the rest of the season of Bad Batch and just like jumped in on this episode. What do you think? J- just to give background, I have seen pieces of the first season. I know the overall story arc. I read about it. Um, I know the beats of, of Bad Batch just because I like to stay abreast about it. Um, my father-in-law who is a, he's a casual Star Wars fan, 
has called my wife multiple nights asking for the Disney Plus login because he is such a bad Batch fan. He's like, I gotta watch the next episode. I gotta <laughs> watch the next episode. I can't watch <laughs> Disney on the browser anymore. I've got to download the Disney Plus app on my on my computer. And so he is he is enthralled by Bad Batch. And so I know you you mentioned Bad Batch being similar to Clone Wars and that it's uh, kind of geared toward children. And and some of the episodes definitely feel that way. And I can see that this episode felt like a scene from Saving Private Ryan. It was just, it was so well done. There's so many adult themes here. There's PTSD. There's how we treat veterans. It's just, my wife, after we finished Mandalorian episode two, I said, hey, do you mind if we watch this Bad Batch episode? Uh, we're going to maybe cover it on the, uh, on the podcast. And she said, yeah, I'm just going to play on my phone. And after about two minutes into the episode, she stopped looking at her phone. And so <laughs> we both just were enthralled by it. It was so good. The visuals with the uh, snow vulture or whatever it's called, ice vulture. Yes. It, yes. Everything about it was just mm, chef's kiss. Just so good. <laughs> anyway, that was my I'm – not, I'm not huge into keeping up to date on the Bad Batch uh, in terms of watching, but that's, that's my casual drive-by review. Mm. Does it make you – want to go back and watch other episodes if we tell you which ones are really good and which ones to skip? Yes, if you tell me which ones that I can watch and which ones to skip, uh, I will absolutely do that. But that's the problem is that I'll watch like a few episodes and I'm like, well, one of them is kind of like hokey or one of them sort of like has that traditional Clone Wars feel, which is not bad. Mm -hmm. It's just not for me. But this one is like, oh my gosh, you're just blown away when you watch it. So anyway, sorry. Well, sorry you definitely need to go back and, and watch episode three. Okay. The yes. one that I talked about, the solitary clone, and then Jonathan, would you recommend seven and eight? Yeah. So, so I would say, uh, even though this was a very well done episode, like from a writing and visual and acting standpoint, it was very well done, but it was so dark and so bleak <clears throat> and depressing, and the action wasn't particularly exciting. Like there, there's ways that you do action. Where it's like in epi- in the third episode of this season, which is also a um, uh, a crosshair episode, the action was so exciting and engaging. I was on the edge of my seat, but it also had these deeper dark themes. Here, the action was just kind of eh, it, it's fine. It's there's nothing to write home about. I wouldn't want, want this is not an episode I want to go back and rewatch a lot necessarily. Mm-hmm. Whereas I don't necessarily feel that seven and eight are as tight in terms of writing as this episode. Mm-hmm. But the payoffs and the, the, the euphoria you feel in watching 7 and 8 and just the entertainment factor, especially for someone who loves politics, is just that much higher mm-hmm. in 7 and 8. So that's mm-hmm. why, to me, I prefer 7 and 8 over 3 and whatever this number was, 14 or 12, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, but that's just me. So Yeah, this was... I'm trying to look it up. Yeah, episode 12, you're right. I, I actually would still prefer 3 and 12, but, you know, when you talk about, like, the tight writing, that really, really shines forth in both of those because not only are they well-written, but they're so, like, the... We talked about the vulture earlier and the foreshadowing mm-hmm. elements. Yeah. And, like, the themes that come out don't come out as in, like, hey, here's this theme with some really good dialogue and a moving story. It's artistic. It's yeah. masterfully handled. It's mm-hmm. like, wow, all the thought that went into this imagery with the vulture 
and the multiple times that it happens, like it when it hits you that final time, it hits you in a way that Crosshair is he, he just like you understand exactly what he's feeling and thinking, and you know you understand totally the way that he would make that move to defend Mayday. Um, yeah, so but but the Trent those two episodes were like the mid season finale seven and eight mm-hmm. and so those are also those are also very very good um, i'm just real realizing jennifer corbett not only is she the head writer of the series but she writes you know a couple episodes per season and she's written a lot of my favorites she wrote battle scars the episode which is the episode with um uh when that certain clone wars character returns with an awesome new theme oh i don't want to spoil it yeah she wrote wow. that episode so yeah, she's doing a she's doing a good job, and you know this is we we've talked about this before, Trent. But to me, even though uh, Filoni created the series and wrote the pilot episode, mm-hmm. his involvement has been minimal. He's not written any episodes since the pilot, and he's not directing at all. He's just kind of like given notes and stuff. This is the first time that an animated series has truly broken away and done a great job without Filoni mm-hmm. um, in there because uh, the, the show Resistance didn't really catch on and neither did the shorts that they did for Forces of Destiny. And so I am very happy that they're able to show, prove that they don't need Filoni to be the head writer of the series. I, I, I love stuff like this because this, George Lucas, and maybe Filoni learned this from Lucas, there were moments in Lucas's career, especially later after the prequels or during the prequels, when he just sort of like came up with an idea and he passed it off to his his uh, you know right. his crew. Uh, the Clone Wars animated series was was like that. He's like, oh, I've got this idea. The uh, Mace Window punches a bunch of robots. Can you make it happen? And he makes it happen. <laughs> and, and like they make it really good. I, I think that even though that sounds lazy uh, for the original creator. I think it opens up this door for new creators to come in and, and write really good stuff like this, mm-hmm. and they get to like show off their their prowess. And so, some people may look at that negatively. I think it's a benefit, uh, especially for new new talent. So I, I loved it, and yeah, and and especially since you know, to me, I want Filoni to be going into the live action. I mm-hmm. want him to get movies eventually. If he's doing that properly, he does not have the time yeah. to stay in animation, even though he's so good in animation, which is why the model he's created, where he will create an idea, give it to someone else, and then someone else who's really talented, like Corbett and Rao, they take it and go running with it. I'm like, that's how you do it. Yeah. You know, Jonathan, a I don't know of another show for kids that has ever come anywhere close to, to, to dealing with war in all of its aspects or showing it the way that Clone Wars did. And some of the best individual stories are just the character perspective of soldiers that we get, of clone troopers. And Bad Batch right here, this episode just really takes the absolute best mm-hmm. of those same type things and deals with them on this perspective of obviously like, what is it like to leave that? And the consequences that we're going to face now is like, you're being phased out and not just like, what do I do with my life? But we're being really badly mistreated, which I know that's like, you know, not directly mentioned here, but happens a lot in, in the real world with like the veterans, you know, not quite being, being able to get the treatment that they need or, or the help that they need so many times. So, um, yeah, that, in in and of itself, like to be handled to a just a, kid, a kids show, I I personally got a lot of my 
beliefs and exposure to that warlike mindset from this show, you know? It did like do you agree with oh, with like that being shaping? They, they they always say, you know, first first it was uh CS Lewis who had the mm-hmm. line uh if you uh if your children's story cannot be appreciated by adults, then it's not a great children's story. And mm-hmm. that was the original line. And then it was and then it became the idea of, well, they started making TV shows for kids that adults would enjoy because they realized they have another audience that they could bring in into these animated shows. So now you have this type of a show, which is ostensibly a, a kid's show, but we're all adults and we're able to perfectly enjoy it just fine. It doesn't feel juvenile. Well, at moments it does, yeah. but an episode like this doesn't feel juvenile. It feels perfectly designed for both kids, it's just edgy enough that kids will <clears throat> learn from it but be a little scared by it, and adults will, will really think about the deep themes and whatnot. So they, it, they, it's, a, it's a sweet spot that they've hit, and, yeah. and it's mm-hmm. really working well for them. I think Crosshair's also got the most development of any of the Bad Batch. Oh, and yeah. And it's going to be interesting if he does meet back up with them and join them, which he may or may not. But I hope. Like, if <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> If we get a comparison of the dynamic before when they were all together with Crosshair and then after and how differently he would be. And it would mean a lot to see the way that he appreciates his, his brothers um, and the way that they treat him because he's finally had be, he's been taken to that point, you know, and now he would appreciate them in a way that he never would have. He, um, he's at this unique crossroads. It's just this overlapping of rejection where from, from his uh, cloning. He's been rejected as "quote unquote" part of the Bad Batch, so he's a he's a defective clone. So you're in this group, and then he rejects them for you know his own reasons, his own personal reasons, and so he's got his sort of villain arc. Some people mm-hmm. might say, and then he has this moment where he is met with the clones that were accepted and no, and now are no longer accepted by the New Empire or whatever you want to call them, and so it's just this crossroad of rejection, rejection, rejection. And so he's he's challenged at a point where he has to make a decision. And I think we saw that right at that moment when he says lieutenant and he shoots the guy because that guy's a vulture and he's just preying on the weak uh, is sort of the implication, I think. I, I think we will see Crosshair come back to the Bad Batch. I think that's a, an excellent, excellent character development uh, within that guy. Well, also just from the planning of the story as we know it, um, uh, where does he... You, you, this may not mean anything to you, uh, Trent, if you haven't seen this, the other parts of the Bad Batch, but where does he end up at the end of this episode? In Mount Tantus. And we know Mount Tantus is going to be very important at the end of season two, so it only makes sense that you put the two and two together. Mount oh, Tantus yeah. is going to be important to the Bad Batch, and he's there. He's going to somehow rejoin them by the end of the season. Yeah, they're, they're definitely going to have a collision of worlds um, yeah, the Empire really did him dirty, didn't they? They just, you know, they, they took away his authority. They took away his his titles. Then they started, you know, underappreciating him and giving him menial tasks. And his, his moral line, like, that's w- where we see it, when you just take a good soldier and let them die right there and don't help them and don't do anything and call them a literal waste, um, they he gave them every chance. Uh, maybe if he'd been better appreciated. There's Nine point five is my score for 9. this. 5, okay. I loved it. I 
I think I might have given episode three like a nine point nine or something like right. You you close. you almost gave it. A I really score. liked episode <laughs> three. This one was almost as good. It was really 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 good. What I'll give it an eight. <laughs> it's great. It's just it's it misses it misses it's the more adventure elements. Right. Not having any reference, obviously, uh, mine would be 10 out of 10. I think it was better writing than The Mandalorian Episode 2 of Season 3. Like, it was just, because I watched them back-to-back, and I'm mm-hmm. sure a lot of people did. The stark contrast in writing was just like, I was just shocked, because it was That's supposed to I be said. a good show. It's just the, like, <laughs> I what? told Jonathan that same thing. Yeah. I agree, so I agree totally with you. Did Did Christina have any comments like that? Did she say... Like, she she just she just said, "Oh my gosh, I was not expected to be pulled in." Like because she was looking at her, she was literally looking at her phone and and put it down, which to me is one of the best compliments you give a TV show nowadays. Is if you can pull somebody away from Instagram, from yeah. TikTok, and draw them in with a story, even if it's simple, like it's just a guy following that blood trail, or it's a guy struggling with, you know, this guy wants me to put my helmet on, I take it off, I have some character growth, like he just sees me as a soldier. It's it's such a simple narrative, but it's done in such a strong way. I think it's impressive, and it just speaks to the, the art of star- storytelling. So, mm. ended up being a long episode, but really, really fun. To oh be yes, guys. I think Trent, you always bring out the the best in me and Jonathan both. So thank you, same here. Thank you so much. Yeah, and uh, really, really, really enjoy our time together, Jonathan. Anything to say before you uh, dismiss us? Uh, no, only that. Man, do we have a c- c- great couple of weeks, because we're at the point now in Mandalorian that I thought we would be towards the end of the season, so I'm like, oh, yes. where do we go now? <laughs> yes. Very glad that, yeah, we're already here. Yes. So, all right, you can find us on Simplecast, iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Radio.com, and Stitcher. You can find our Facebook page, Two Sons of Tatooine, and you can find my YouTube channel, Jonathan Cohn and my written Star Trek book reviews at Roku Depot. But until next time, I'm Jonathan. And I am Nathan. And I'm Trent. And thank you for another listening to another episode of Two Sons of Tatooine.